Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale and I are back after a little bit more than a week absence, and we're going to have a conversation today about education. Uh, Perhaps some of our our listeners were reading the story this last week that uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, is having a financial crisis, and there's a lot of articles floating around the internet right now about a crisis in theological education and a crisis in theological institutions, which of course is, you know, it's part of the larger crisis in higher education as such, and there's a lot of commentary about, you know, what's going on there, what's the, what is causing that sort of, that sort of shift in, 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 in people's focus and people's investment, that kind of thing. Um, and one, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of framing this conversation on the one hand uh, within this uh, question of uh, the, the, the sort of fate, the, 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 the unknown fate, in a sense, of this shifting ecosystem of higher education and what's, what, what that, that fracture is going to cause in terms of kind of newness in the civilization. So that's one side of the conversation. The other side of that is, um, you know, it's important to, I think, know that a lot of the conversation about the university in the past has been has been shaped on the perception uh, that the university and especially major universities were sort of the center of cultural capital. Um, mm. And so, you know, in James Hunter's To Change the World, he talks about how it's, you know, largely elites that change culture via what he calls centers of cultural capital and the way that people change culture is by sort of colonizing, as it were, centers of cultural capital. But centers of cultural capital, one thing that, you know, is often missed in the argument is that centers of cultural capital are, are historically relative. At one, in one era, it might be the newspaper, in one era, the monarchy, in another era, it might be the media, it might be Facebook, it might be uh, the university. Uh, but but one thing that I think it's interesting, you know, the book is written in 2012, and here we are 10 years later in 2022, and the, the question of the cultural capital of the university or major newspapers or major media outlets or the Oscars, being able to assume that people are watching them. The question of cultural capital has significantly shifted in the last decade uh, in terms of just the the kind of uh, uh, street cred that institutions and organizations have. Uh, And so in that, uh, a while ago, you know, you know, when Christians maybe I'll put it this way, when Christians were talking about building new institutions or in in a lot of decades, let's say, when Christians have been talking about building new institutions, they've typically created kind of uh, alter ego Christian parodies of secular institutions that were not that interesting or successful. And what you see in our moment is actually just a shifting shifting sands in the area area of just what is cultural capital, what is education, what does it mean to know, what credentials do actually represent knowing, uh, the, the, the advent of <laughs> Joe Rogan <laughs> yeah, yeah. is an interesting, is it, you know, it's weird, Civil, it's civilizationally, we're in a weird moment, uh, but it, but it then opens up the question now we're pairing it then with this question of kind of the shifting sand of the university. It opens up the question of what, what the 
what the emergence of new types of cultural capital is going to look like in conversation in parallel, if you will, with what is the emergence of the new mode of teaching going to look like, not assuming that the university model is all dead or that we're not going to have regular sure. university still, but like, what is the fusion of those two things kind of the future of at least an additional additional modes of education and additional uh, in overlap with uh 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 yeah uh, 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 yeah being a new site as it were of cultural capital where's that going i guess uh, uh yeah and, and, yeah go ahead yeah, well, it's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer. I don't know if I've thought about it enough to have any um, sort of thoughtful remarks on where it's going. I guess I could point to some signposts that give us an indication on where it might be headed. Um, but I think that that requires first a sort of like survey of the landscape and mm -hmm. just to understand what is going on with this phenomena in higher ed. Uh, you know, you meant, mentioned modes of uh, education, and that's a, that's a pretty important uh, topic. I think that would be a good jumping off point to discuss. Right. So like, what are the modes of education that are being employed right now? I think um, we could probably accurately and fairly say that one of the modes of education in the university uh, boils down to identity politics. Um, and when you start thinking about that, it's not just sort of like the little blurbs that you catch on social media, but education is no longer pursued as an end in and of itself. Education comes from um, a sort of activist spirit, wherein the education is giving them the tools that are necessary to bolster the thing that they are active about when they identify themselves with a particular group of people or a particular uh, ideology or whatever. And so that's one mode of doing education. Um, another mode of education might be a sort of reductionist materialistic uh, approach where, uh, you know, when we talk about what a horse is, uh, we say, well, a horse is composed of X amount of chemicals with X amount of organs and this electrical system does this and this biological system does that. But of course, you and I know that's not what a horse is. Uh, that's what a horse is made of. So there's this sort of like analytical approach or mode of education that sort of pulls everything apart and lays it all out. And you really lose the meaning through the details. Uh, and then you have a mode of education that I think was always the mode, or at least the, what the educators um, in the past have tried to do was to introduce the student to the tradition of human inheritance. What are you inheriting? Um, there could be a critical spirit about that where it's like, well, everything we're inheriting is bad and therefore I need to critique everything that we've inherited. So you get rid of history as a discipline and you use it more as a foil for a grievance and a prog in order to sort of like lay out a, a roadmap of progress into the future. Um, but education was always thought of as educating the full person uh soul reasonable soul and body with their emotions 
Um, and education really approached the uh, emotions first, because if you think about it, when you look at a butterfly or whatever, think of something beautiful pictured in your mind, when you first encounter that beautiful thing, you're not analyzing it. C.S. Lewis talks about this. Um, you're not actually analyzing the funny joke while you're laughing. It's only upon reflection that you analyze the funny mm -hmm. joke. Your initial experience of the thing is the first move towards understanding. Um, and this is what I think the um, you know previous attempts at education tried to do. They tried to take the person as they were and say, what does it mean that this thing is here, whatever it is we're discussing? And the arrival at understanding through contemplation uh, was where they tried to lead students in order to have harmony in the soul or peace or shalom or in ordered imagination. Uh, so that's another mode. So you're right, I don't know where it's going, but I do think that it's important to say there are a bunch of different modes. And it seems at least in North America, we're trying on several of those modes. And I'm not sure that it's contributing to the flourishing and the liberation of the people, which was which education was always supposed to be about. It's the liberating arts, the freeing arts. Right. Um, yeah. So just some initial thoughts. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. You talk about and I'll, I'll, I'll mention in a moment what I meant by modes. Uh, you're, you, uh, I meant uh, I meant something more like the media of education are changing. Ah. In other words, from a. Uh, uh, there's more, for instance, virtual uh, media. There's more opportunities to be educated virtually, uh, yeah. but mo but that would have been a better word than modes. Nevertheless, on what you said, yeah, this is this is a big um, this is a big part of any conversation right now about the fate of the university. Is that uh, it would be, I think, dishonest at this point, or at least unwise to be in denial that uh, there is an ideological tail wagging the, 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 the you know, the, the, the philosophical dog, mm. <laughs> if you will, and the practical dog. And of course, it could be added that, uh, you know, from another vantage point, I suppose you could say that in, in as much as what really kind of reigns in the university could be called woke capitalism, uh, there's mm -hmm. a pragmatic tail wagging the ideological dog. And yet neither that pragmatic or that ideology or anything that should interest any of us or, or anything that are is really in the interest of flourishing humans or the truth, at least in that in that kind of hive mind form or that hive agenda form. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a huge part of what is uh, creating uh, alienation inside the university, inside of every faculty I have ever seen. Uh, it's creating students who are disinterested in the university. But I mean, you, you add to that a in, in interestingly woke capitalism, right? These things are parodied. Uh, uh, you add to that, of course, just the exorbitant cost of the university relative to the its its increasing valuelessness to the the increasing valuelessness of a degree on the marketplace. And what you get out of all of that is a university whose product is actually just less compelling on the marketplace. And, and that's just that's just kind of the side of the question that. Uh, that is part of the explanation of why there's just people not going. 
uh, you know, just disinterested in going to the university. What's happening alongside of that is you seem to see the, the university actually losing cultural capital uh, yeah. uh, 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 to the extent, in a sense, that the university has become so driven by the marketplace and the marketplace by wokeism. And you have that fusion, especially through kind of big government grants entering these university bureaucracies, just as you see, I think, in a lot of big government agencies, or it, and frankly, big business agencies. It's funny how yeah. similar that private and public places are. <laughs> Tells you yes. something, maybe. Uh, yes. uh, uh, uh yeah, you see all those forces, and it's like, on the one hand, the university is just a less attractive place to be. Uh, uh, on the whole, there are plenty of exceptions, and that should be said. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's losing a kind of public credibility that's surprising. I mean, even more now, like decidedly more now. Uh, uh, than I would say even 10 years ago. In fact, I think you were just telling me about an article before we hopped on, you were telling me about an article about how many endowments, and that's like that's like the that's the definition of cultural capital, right? Is you got a bunch of endowments. Uh, how many endowments Harvard has lost in just the last couple of years? It, like a, a truly stunning amount of just uh uh yeah, yeah, with yeah. withheld whatever. So that all accounts for like the the yeah, I think a, a you know a changing ecosystem of the product of public education and what is emerging, and of course part of that is also just the, the advent of the internet and all that's done to civilization. Um, but what, and what's emerging in that it seems are new cultural forms. You know, nobody could have predicted Facebook and Twitter as centers of sure. you know Donald Trump and Twitter don't they, they don't <laughs> exist without each other right, as a story right. at least as a yes. narrative. Uh, and it's interesting to ask maybe what what should wise builders, in a sense, mm. be staring at in this world to say, yeah. uh, uh, how do we accomplish the project of education in a way that's accessible to people in the real world where a lot of institutions, and again, I always labor to say not all of them have failed. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you run into the problem of the chicken and the egg, right? It's almost like what comes first? Does culture shape politics or does politics shape culture? And in a way, you just have to say yes, right? Like they both, it's, it's almost a reciprocal relationship. Hmm. I don't know what comes first. I'm not sure. I'm sure a bunch of people have opinions. Anyway, I, I think that, so you're talking about cultural capital and about the future and what do builders need to think about if they're going to build something for the future that you know has cultural capital and there's a big chunk of me that says well we have to i think that what needs to take place first is a revolution of what is understood as cultural capital so you mentioned um this sort of woke capitalism corporate capitalism that's going on in america and unfortunately education has become a site wherein um, cubicle workers for Amazon get trained, um, or, yeah. you know, you're just pumping out degrees for people to have a American dream life, uh, with the house and the cars and the vacations and the 2.3 kids and the things that has been sort of shaping what American, the American vision is for so long. Um, and I really do think it's going to take not a revolutionary, but a reformer to come along and say education is a means in and of itself. Um, education um, recognizes that human beings have an intuitive movement that their will makes towards knowing and understanding. 
That's one of the things that binds us together as image bearers. We want to know. And we all have this, uh, similar questions, not just us in the West, every human that has ever lived all across the face of the planet have asked themselves, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why is there something rather than nothing? What happens after I'm dead? The big questions of life are what compelled humans to organize themselves into structured communities that sought to answer these questions, but also to answer the questions of why does a caterpillar crawl into a cocoon and then emerge as a butterfly? Why does a bear go to sleep for this many months out of the year? You know, why does salmon know how to swim back upstream to the place they were born to lay their own eggs before they die? What is this thing? Um, and it was a pursuit of knowledge for the sake of the pursuit of knowledge. And then people felt more controlled with uh, moving around in a world that they could understand a little bit better. But in the modern world, we've taken education and we've packaged it and we've sold it uh, for endowments to, to promise the investors and the parents of the children that give us their money that your child will be X title of thing in the marketplace. And that title makes this amount of this much money. And that's the good life. Uh, so we've really rearranged because of this sort of corporate crony capitalistic economic system. We've rearranged what it even means to understand. Uh, it's not understanding for the sake of understanding. It's understanding for the sake of a pragmatic end that cashes out in economic viability. Um, so cultural capital, you only get cultural capital when the culture says that that is capital. Uh, and so I think what you're asking is how, how do institutions in education and particularly in the university uh, model start to reinvent themselves as centers of cultural capital? I don't know. Perhaps there needs to be a return to something that was there before that is now accessible for the modern man, given all the things that we deal with. Um, and now we can reformat the palette of the culture to taste the things that are good. So I don't, I don't know. That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting comment because I, one of the things that I, one of the thoughts I've developed for a while, I suppose, is that uh, the, the capitalism in a sense, and I'm not using that in an overly ideological way, I'm really just using it as a shorthand, you know, maybe there's some version of capitalism that's just fine. So I'm not, I'm not trying to like be, yeah. be over, I'm uh, again, just shorthand for, yeah, kind of crony predictable industrial practices that have existed in the modern world uh, fairly ubiquitously. In any case, the thing that fascinates me, I think, is that capitalism wins through the body in a way, wins through appeal to the body. That's what the market is doing mostly. It does appeal to the good life, but it's appealing to a good life as measured by the body. And it's very powerful 
It's very, very powerful. And um, uh, 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 it's interesting to think, you know, sometimes we, uh, this isn't me, but I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create a profile here, if you will. Uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned about too much Muslim immigration, right? You know, they're going to come over here and train their kids to be jihadists or whatever, and then blow things up or something like that. Uh, one thing that's always fascinated me about that perspective, and I'm not saying every, you know, I'm not trying to be polemical or anything, but one thing that's always fascinated me about that perspective is that the assumption is you can just be a conservative Muslim from Saudi Arabia and raise your kids in America and let them watch Disney and wear blue jeans. And somehow they're going to be the same. There's mm. an argument to be made that capitalism has at in the market have shown itself to be more powerful <laughs> than your religious habituation. Uh, in fact, that's been shown generation after generation over and over again. And there's no model in fact, there is no model that has been safe from it. And perhaps there's an argument there for saying Christianity has to regain the grammar of desire. Uh, yeah. And that in education, that's what I kind of like about what you said. One of the things I think Hunter actually doesn't talk about, but that you said, is that uh, for a thing to be cultural capital, nevertheless, implies that it's a consumed thing. In other words, like, Maybe nobody reads the New York. It's not that everybody reads the New Yorker, but we all know the New Yorker has street cred because we know like yeah. the smart people read it. I don't mean everybody think we have friends that are intrinsically suspicious of the New Yorker simply right. because smart people read it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's yes. another error, by the way. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, people have to have a set of uh, interpret they have to have an interpreter grid by which they come to that judgment and so it'd be interesting to say what what would it mean to mess with the interpretive grid that creates kind of mass creates this thing kind of being the mass center of cultural capital and i wonder if part of it is uh uh, and I'm not trying to be Finney-esque here, like you can engineer sure. regeneration or something. Nevertheless, you will know them by their love. There is a there is an affective dimension to the Christian yeah. witness and to Christian life. Uh, and I guess I'm thinking, what does maybe maybe the the way that pitches back to our central theme is, what does that look like in education? I'll ask you because I think you think about this a lot. What does what role does the 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 pinging of desire and the pinging of human affect have in the in the shaping of a soul in this mm -hmm. world where everything is trying to ping those things in them how yeah. do we ping those things in them as well and better and more precisely and deeper yeah yeah that'd be an interesting book to read um and that'd be an interesting dissertation actually uh so i, I want to say something that's not cliche so that my brain is scrambling not to say something that just sounds you know sort of whatever it really i think does boil down to you know aristotle said in his ethics every thought uh every desire and every act is aimed at some good Right. So um, I tend to agree with Aristotle there, because if you sit down and think about it long enough, it, it uh, yeah. proves to be true. More likely than not. Yes. <laughs> so what has happened with modernity, and it's really happened 
in every epic, every epoch of human history is you um, settle into communities wherein barnacles grow on top of desire. And there's always the, the you know, a, a group of thinkers that come along that have the ability to scrape off the barnacles so that the pure, you know, hull of desire can be seen in all of its glory. Um, I don't know what those people look like or, or if there are any alive right now. Jordan Peterson might be one. Mm. Um, but I think that it is going to have to be a radical reimagining of almost everything that we take for granted. Um, you know, your book actually, um, 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 on divine absence really helped me to begin thinking this way about how I take so many things for granted in the modern age. And you want to talk about why atheism is a, uh, you know, legitimate, option for modern people um, because we're disconnected with with uh, nature in some ways you know um, and i think the same goes for desire we have billboards that tell us what we should desire billboards that the whole families can look at on the side of highways <laughs> with you know half naked men and women about perfect bodies and liposuction and botox and lip treatments and and uh and clothing and even the idea of what a beautiful woman is. I think that it was you and I that were uh, talking, I don't know, a while ago. And you said, you said something that was profound. You said, isn't it crazy that our, that you and I and our kids will see more beautiful women in one day than most young men or women have seen in their whole lifetime, you know, a thousand years ago, beauty, uh is now sort of like marketed and packaged and promoted everywhere but the emphasis on the beauty is not the beauty in and of itself um or it's merely aesthetic beauty uh but that shapes the desire of you know whatever lust or, or sex or passion um and it's only directed one way and then you have you know pornography um and then you've got violence that's that's glorified and glamorized. But anyway, this is a very long winded way for me to say it really, I believe, is going to take a stripping of the uh, the current imagination of the modern mind down to asking and the only uh, the stripping away of all of those barnacle barnacles away from that which should be desired. And the only way you're going to get there is through a Socratic sort of method of asking questions. And the problem with that is that when you begin to ask questions that rail that that hit our hit us and we're like, no, 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 no I don't want to answer that. You're not being forced to answer those questions anymore. You don't have to answer those questions anymore. So it takes our last episode was on courage. It takes an enormous amount of courage to ask questions like that and then peel away all of the assumptions that you have that revolve around um, our various desires and say, why is that desirable? What makes it desirable? Is it that that corporation packaged it that what? I love my iPhone. Why do I look at this thing? It's so pretty, right? Is it, <laughs> is it because 
Apple has done a good job of marketing it's you're a to loser. me. I mean, like, well, yeah. that goes without saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but like, what is it inside of me? And I think that once you begin to answer those questions, you're at least on a journey. You're at least on a road to discovering what lays at the bottom or the base of your desires. Yeah. And that yeah, only really think... happens when when you have a uh, when you have a society wherein discourse and debate and conversation are um, promoted and encouraged. So this is this is perhaps where uh, talking about the great texts is. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of segue this into talking about the great texts and education. Uh, and there's a couple things to say here, because uh, in, in some way, the and you mentioned the Socratic method, in some way, the only way to to uh, to to beat uh, uh, the temptation of the tasty apple uh, that it, you know that's always in front of you uh, is to not go for the immediate uh, and through steps to have a sense of what is better and higher. It's easy. Well, uh, temptation and sin present themselves as a step away, but wisdom feels many steps away. Mm. Uh, uh, and one of the things that the, the training of desire toward vice is very quick. The training of desire toward virtue is very uh, is full of uh, 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 is full of trial and error. And so it's interesting to think that you know this is part of what education is for children. Part of what you're doing for children is recognizing the tendency. Uh, even good ten, even you know, good children or whatnot, but the tendency is going to be toward kind of untrained, just go after the apple, right? And so, what do you have to do? You have to you have to train desires over time. Some of that is through. I'm sorry, I'm not even going to explain it to you. You just have to be right. there. But yes. when it gets to the books, part of what the role of the great books, uh, which have to be read slowly and and, mm. and commiserated on is that you learn to enjoy them the way that people learn to enjoy wine. There's a, you know, you know, it, it might be that, you know, uh, the kid complains about reading for a bit or something like that, but you're yeah. training, uh, 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 you're, you're training obviously the discipline of reading, but you're doing that for the sake largely to introduce them to the great text, the Bible, most of all, of course. Mm. But then, of course, classics, the content of which is also meant to, to ennoble the soul for the sake of the training of desire. What I would, what I would say can tend to happen, though, is that it, where we can become ideological about this is that that becomes a sort of script. Yes. So it's like there's the classic texts and you got to go through them in this way to get to this end because we're training warriors here, blah, 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 that sort of right. thing. If the goal is the ennoblement of the soul, it is the, 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 the training of the soul into smelling the fragrance of reality a whiff of which is deeper and more profound and more delightful than the offerings of these little advertisements, that sort of thing. Mm. If that is the target, then I think what you realize is that project is realizable everywhere and anywhere in some measure. Uh, yes. It cannot be fully, you know, ideally you can send a kid to school. Ideally, that kid can have tutors. Ideally, they're reading classic texts. But the range of what is a classic is going to depend upon tutors. And mm. a tutor is really, this is actually where, you know, 
the, the, the first version of the hippies and the conservatives sometimes have a little bit of overlap, <laughs> which is the, the training of wonder in a child. Yeah. The hippies tended to reduce what children are, and therefore they didn't think children were had any sin. And so you're just supposed to let them prance free and whatever. And, you know, that that's a problem. Uh, nevertheless, the, the intuition that the the movement of the child is through wonder. This is why Lewis uh, <laughs> wins, right? Yeah. Is that the movement to truth is through the pinging, and we could speak of this as an affective sort, the pinging of wonder, philosophy, the movement beyond the immediate begins in wonder, uh, mm. which, which is just short. When wonder is always prior, it's more immediate. Yeah. Uh, it's in between you and the shiny thing and can, and can, help you with beyond it in a sense. Um, And I think it, yeah, so it's important to say that's what we're saying in a sense is very non-ideological. It can be a homeschool mom that just helps a child see the butterflies well and like learn to name the different kinds of bark uh, Mm -hmm. and and connect to a place, read some books. uh, And that can fuel a whole project. Uh, uh, that, that, you know, that, and, and the alternative, in fact, is if you think that um, this is the kind of thing that can be merely engineered through doing it right, yes. you are almost certainly not training the <laughs> desires of the children. And what's going to wind up happening is your classical education, and I've seen this over and over again, your cash, your classical education program is no match for Playboy. Playboy yeah. is way more attractive yes. <laughs> than yes. your project, yes. <laughs> but there's something more attractive than Playboy. Uh, and yeah. yeah, and yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I think you're right. I I love your comments on wonder, um, and uh, I think that. You know, it's interesting the way that classics talked about wonder. Wonder was a fear, it was an emotion of fear. You know, it was mm. like you come to the perimeter of your knowledge and you can't go any further, but you know that there's a big wide abyss that stands at mm. the brink of your understanding. And that is, it was a healthy fear. It wasn't yeah. like run away and get scared, uh, but it was nevertheless an emotion of fear. It's not unrelated to the fear of God, really. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, like uh, talking with our good brother Heard, when he talks about God, you feel that fear because Mm. you realize what you don't know, right? Like you just, your mind stretches and grasps for whatever it is you can hang on to. And at some point you're left floating going, I don't know how to go anywhere. I don't know where else to go. I've reached my maximum capacity. Um, and that is fear. That is the fear of the knowledge of God. Um, but, you know, on the other side of fear was leisure. You know, it was the arrival at understanding through contemplation. Uh, so the contemplative life really, this is why I'm very skeptic about, like you said, about uh, people sort of instrumentalizing the classics and classical education in particular, uh, and turn it into an ideology. You and uh, you had a chapter in Christian and the philosophy or philosophy and the Christian at the end there uh, with Peter that talked about this. Um, but you're right; it has to be through a contemplative life, and I'm not sure we can do that anymore because we don't have a lot of time to contemplate 
There's no time for me to sit around in a in a tunic with a glass of wine with my boys on some pillows and have discourse about all the big things that matter for 10 hours because we have to feed children and we have to work and we have mm. to do things. And this is also why I think that we need we desperately need someone to come along and give us a way to do class the classics in the modern age precisely because we are so focused in the modern age on achievement uh we have to achieve this goal this goal we've got a to-do yeah. list we've got we've got all these yeah. things that constantly pull us apart and it's impossible to sit around and have a contemplative life when we are stuck in this world that is calling us constantly you've got friends text messages emails phone yeah. calls everything all, in the world. all the all the default settings are going to habituate you into just sort of running around like a chicken with your head cut off yes. and it takes yeah any any mode of a contemplative life in most contemporary american contexts or at least in suburban contexts i would imagine uh, takes strategy I mean, it just, it does take actual strategy. And of course, just as with there being, you know, I, I, I believe that there should be the most elite of the elite education. And I believe you can genuinely educate a child in the wonder that leads all the way uh, yeah. in a trailer park with a handful of books. Yep. <laughs> so I, and I, I think both of the, the existence of both of those things is a good thing. Um, uh, uh, similarly, uh, the existence of a range of capacity to contemplate is a good thing. You know, mm. this is another thing Heard has said, right, is that um, we participate in one another's gifts. Aquinas is the guy in some ways who just, he saw a bunch directly. And what his summa is, is helping your, he's handholding your mind through the steps so that you can see it too. And in most of our lives, that's why we have teachers. We have teachers because teachers are the people in the community who in a sense are taking our, a common faculty that we share, our mind, our capacity to wonder, not that we're gonna be lazy about it ourselves, but, they're, but they're, they are given a, a practical context where those faculties are unleashed in, a, in the same way a craftsman is on a wood, this person is unleashed into the craft of the imagination in a sense, whether that be yes. expressed in the arts or through philosophical or theological discourse on occasion. Uh, or through the pastorate, quite frankly, mm. um, through poetry. Um, uh, we unleash that so that it can be brought back to the community and made distributed, I think, in a more mass way. And this is where you look at somebody like Lewis. You know, here's a person whose life is largely splint, consolidated, consolidating the classics, but also living them, living a real human life, really undergoing a journey of soul in conversation with the classics, in sympathy with real humans. He's a very careful reader of humans and of his context. And then what his corpus then is, is a, 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 a translation in a sense mm, to yeah. the masses so that you don't have to go live a whole contemplative life to have some of these insights. He has helped you get them very excessively. Uh, yeah. And you get almost, ex you get the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, that's a great point. It's E equals MC. It's like for, for Einstein, E equals MC squared is the arrival of the journey. For us, it's the first thing we know. We, yeah. we start there and then we move. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, and so, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a brilliant point. That's a very good point. I think the distribution uh, of the contemplative life 
is an important thing to note. Very, very well said. The last thing I'll say as we're sort of winding down here is um, we've done a lot of sort of describing and uh, analyzing and surveying. Let me offer my humble suggestion on uh, a positive step forward hmm. for university models. I mean, and in a way, this is what we are trying to do with the Davenant Institute. Also, we talk about this pretty frequently is the mm, Davenant Institute right. imagines ourselves as an army of friends. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> we're looking for more friends. So I really do believe all the way down um, with the tradition, I believe this is that if we're going to create centers of education, whether that be in the trailer park or that be the ivory towers of academia, whatever it is, there needs to be a uh, a re-emphasis on friendship and real relationship within the disciplines, uh, within the study. There is nothing more educating than when you and I, Joe, sit around and talk for four hours. Mm. That's some of the deepest education I get. Yeah. Very rarely do you walk away with understanding uh, from a lecture hall as you do walking away from three hours spent with your friends that share your interests and are asking and trying to answer the same questions about life that you are. Mm -hmm. um, education largely comes through conversation. Uh, one, things I, one of the things I say all the time to my community is reformation comes around a dinner room table. Um, that's where you see the most uh, sort of that's where I have personally seen um, the greatest mm. uh, repentance, um, moves of sacrifice, sanctification, understanding, uh, arrival. It's, it's in lived life with people that you get an education. And, um, and, that just works better when you have friends <laughs> that that happen to share interest of yours and so allowing the university model to maybe be a little bit less strict because of the achievement model that we have sort of erected because of our economic system yeah and then paint reimagining it as a leisurely hall where friends gather to discuss the most important things right yeah. I don't know if that's a pie in the sky dream. I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, in the sense that though I I don't know that it's I don't know that it's something I see most u concurrent universities doing. I think there are yeah. some that will move in liberal arts schools that uh, are moving in that direction or might wind up in that direction. And that's where I'd say, like, you know, again, I'm not. Some of these universities are still good, viable institutions. I think there's sure. good, viable seminaries. Like I I love the reform theological in dc i went to i would be happy if my pastor were trained there they, they yep. a good training place um but you know this isn't a it's not a zero-sum game there's partially a both and and in the shifting ecosystem i think what you're seeing is is just as in architecture you see new buildings new modes of architecture arise alongside the old I think you're going to see new modes arise alongside the old uh, and what the relationship between those two things will be is the hardest to predict. But I mm. would anticipate, so for instance, in the, in the well, 
you're you're an interesting example. Davenance is an interesting example. We're you know in a sense we're providing lay. I say lay that uh, I shouldn't quite put it that way. I was about to say lay theological education. It's really just theological education for more than ministers. That's a better way to say it. Like we have a mm. lot of ministers who are doing supplementary theological education. Maybe you already been through seminary or elders or something like that. But it's also you know you know moms. Uh, it's also just engineers. It's just anybody who wants to know because they have wonder. So what? what unites the people in the room is not a, a clerical focus or even a distinct an institutionally ecclesiastical focus. What unites the room is the common desire to know and then bring it back to the mul multiplicity of vocations. Um, and what you're seeing, you're, you're seeing that at the same time, I think, as we're seeing a, a shift in the ecosystem of credentialing. One of the things that bedeviled a lot of institutions in the past yeah. was the credentialing lines are so much. But as you see, again, centers of cultural capital shift, you're seeing movements toward credentialing even mattering less because people take it less seriously now. Uh, that yeah. That's a part of the ecosystem at this point that's that's weird and it's a little hard to say what that's going to mean. But in a in an institution like yours or, or like models, you, you do this, this uh, I think you do three days a week, is that right? Which yeah. is which is a different model than your, it's kind of a hybrid model, whereas you have the more traditional model of the Christian school. You're seeing well, your model is a kind of new model that I think will be very successful and you'll probably see a lot of it and likewise you see um the movement toward pulling kids out of school and doing uh, upper level education through online tutors this is yep. a huge movement and they're they're good very well trained tutors and so i'm just seeing all of this shift in the ecosystem um um uh, some of it's good what is that gonna do you know i wouldn't be surprised if there will be churches who send their pastors to get theologically trained in one place, you know, get their, their kind of academic training over here uh, and get their pastoral ministerial training in a more um, apprenticeship style, just as you see yeah. people. And that's kind of what people are doing with a lot of this material is why would I spend $60,000 a year to get a bachelor's degree? That's not going to help me in a marketplace. Why don't I spend four thousand dollars or less than that actually much much less than that every year to just learn what i want to learn and then go exactly. apprentice to become an electrician for ninety thousand dollars a year you know and so right. you're seeing that <laughs> all of these kinds of hybrid ways of both getting an education and just living a normal human life uh yeah. and so all of that's happening and there's too many moving parts to like really yes. prophesy the future i think it's an exactly. exciting time there's a lot of risks there's a lot of dangers. There's a lot of misfocuses. We should never get rid of the incarnate dimension to human education, the importance of the body, the importance of actual faces, the importance of sitting with yeah. one another. But, but there again, there are ways of kind of combining projects to 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 kind of get all of that for the for a, a holistic, but kind of multi-parted, a, a kind of singular education might be. It might be. I'll put it this way, that the future model is that a kind of synthetic and singular education is achieved through a multiplicity of means that are mm. nevertheless commonly known. Uh, you already see things like that, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree that I'm excited about where it's going. I just wanted to mention one thing because you mentioned, because uh, I do agree that it would be the, a multiplicity of mediums through which education is achieved. Um, and you mentioned online tutors. So I've got a good friend of mine named Brenton Rogers, who um, is building out this beautiful website called tutordig.com. Uh, if anybody wants to go check it out, I highly recommend just peeping it out. It's in the beta stage, but he's also noticing this trend and he's trying to capitalize on it um, and we'll see where it goes. But I can imagine there's a bunch of other entrepreneurs that are trying to that are noticing that that rising space for another uh, component in the market and trying to fill it as quickly as they can, the best way they can. So it'll be interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting where yeah. we go from here. So, yeah. Yeah. And just a kind of the last note, I think is that I'd add is that uh, on the one hand, it could be looked at as kind of a shift in the marketplace. I, th I think uh, the shift in the marketplace in this case could also just be called a, a shift in social ecology, like it, whether yeah. the marketplace shifted in a sense, this thing is shifting uh, yeah. and, and, and in a way the, yeah, yeah. The marketplace actually just has to adjust. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, brother, thank you. This was a good conversation. Yeah. 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 All right, everyone. Uh, well, you can head over to uh, Davenant on YouTube and check out our previous episodes. And uh, this will be up on iTunes and Spotify and uh, all of the podcast catchers. But uh, Joe, thank you, brother. I love you. Love you too, man. And uh, we will see you all next time. See ya.